Beloved, open your Bibles for you this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read this morning verses 14 through 16, and then I'll explain why we're reading chapter 3, or 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 16, and, um, and then we'll preach this text. Let's stand together. Let's read this word together and uh, prepare our hearts to receive this word. This is the word of God. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, your word is life to us. And every time we open it up and we study it together as your people, what we're really longing for, Lord God, is for you to speak to us for you to instruct our souls, for you to cut through all of the muck and the mire of this world and and speak undefiled and, and, and plain truth to our souls that desperately need it. And we pray you will do that today. We pray that you will do that today. Father, we live in a world that is steeped in falsehood, where it is impossible. It really is impossible to know anything with certainty. And that's why we need to be so grounded and enmeshed in your truth. Father, I'm asking you this morning that as your word is taught, and as we study this together, that you will enthrone yourself in our minds and in our hearts. And I pray, God, that I would be in your sovereign grip. I pray that I would speak words, only words that are pleasing in your sight. Only words that are good for the edification and the consolation of your people. I'm praying, Lord God, that this time of meeting with you would be of eternal value for every soul. And I pray that we recognize this time for what it is. That every time that we gather together to worship you, it's, it's a unique time, never to be repeated ever again. And so I pray that, Lord God, we will glean everything from this time of worship that we possibly can arrest our hearts and our minds let them not wander let us not just mindlessly you know plow through another sermon but lord god instead let our hearts let our hearts and our minds and our souls be particularly attentive to everything that you say to us Father, we humble ourselves before you. We confess that we're nothing and you're everything. 
we confess that we need to hear a word from you. So please give it. And please magnify Christ in our eyes. Show us Christ, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, you know, with the completion of our study in the epistle to the Romans last week, we've got a few Sundays as we approach Christmas to sort of turn our attention to some of the texts in Scripture that speak to us about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And since there are a number to choose from, right, I want to explain to you this morning why I chose this text. Why did I pick 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16? Well, the first reason I did is because verse 16 is a song. It's a, it's a fragment of an ancient hymn. It is a, a, a really, we might even say a Christmas carol about the incarnation and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But, but that's not all the reason why I chose this text. As I was thinking about Christmas, my mind, beloved, kept returning to a couple of thoughts. It kept returning to the rapt paganism of our culture and the dechristing of the Lord Jesus in the church. Now you might be sitting there thinking, what a poor soul that man is, right? That's so negative. What a negative Nancy. Sorry, Nancy, that should never have been applied to the name Nancy. But, you know, like, what's the deal, man? Well, here's the thing, okay? Beloved, I am gripped continually as a pastor that we don't, that, by the fact that we do not live in a cultural vacuum, right? Like, we don't just exist as an independent entity unaffected by the things that go on around us. And so it may surprise you, maybe it won't, to know that a great number of my waking thoughts are devoted to how to protect this flock and how to establish us ever more firmly in the truth so that we don't fall away. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Because I look in our culture and I see that the outright and the shameless paganism of our society and of our world, it has veritably exploded in the last several years, has it not? I mean, you think about this. It's force-fed to us. This paganism of our age is force-fed to us through a variety of mediums on a daily basis, right? It used to be that when you watched professional football on a Sunday, that the worst possible thing that you might see might be the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, right? But now, some of the messages associated with our beloved National Football League are pagan to the core. The entertainers at halftime are disgusting. John H. Armstrong rightly observed of our nation, he said this, he said, First, we seem to have spent centuries of moral and religious capital in only a few decades. He's right about that. Second, he said, we've already tried, at least for a time, to create a culture that gets rid of God altogether. And third, since this effort to get rid of God has miserably failed, we're now turning, as did pagan peoples before us, to new gods, new divinities, and new worldviews. You can hear the theologies of these new gods every day on the modern equivalents of the ancient Mars Hill. The same 
direction can also be witnessed in the countless new spiritualities that appear almost weekly. These are not even remotely Christian. The headlong pursuit of paganism in our nation, beloved, and in the world is on the rise. And then second, this issue that is so prevalent is the de-Christing of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church. I want, to follow, I want you to follow with me so you understand what I'm saying. Beloved, historic Christianity has always understood the Christhood of Jesus in concrete terms. Concrete, unchangeable terms. His identity, for instance, as the second member of the Trinity, as the Word sent from heaven to become man, to reveal to himself, uh, to reveal himself to fallen humanity as the God-man, as our prophet, priest, and king, right? Climaxing in his redemptive death and resurrection from the dead, and now his return to glory and his rule over the cosmos by the authority that's been granted to him from the Father, and bringing salvation to those for whom he won it. You know, creating, commanding, and building his church until he returns to consummate his kingdom and bring in the final judgment. That has always been the historic understanding of the Christness of Christ. But as J.I. Packer put it, He said the de-supernaturalizing acids of liberal theology have taken their toll on the church. And you can see it. And here's how you see it. It's dissolved away essential truths like that of the Trinity or Christ's personal divinity. It's eroded the importance of the virgin birth and of Christ's miracles and of his bodily resurrection. It's eroded the personal return of Christ, the truths of the atonement, the entire economy of sovereign grace. And it has undermined horrifically the authority of the Word of God. In Packer's assessment, and quite frankly mine too, these things don't seem to matter much anymore. Instead, Christ has been redefined in lesser, more palatable, more domesticatable terms. We talk about him as the model man, or the archetypical good Samaritan, or we talk about him as the embodiment of God's universal love. God loves everybody just the same. Just look at Jesus. I don't know if you've read the Gospels much. But Jesus doesn't treat the Pharisees like he treats his disciples, does he? We've been given this reduced Christ who's the supreme teacher of selfless service or the example for improving the tone of our society and generating greater goodwill in the world around us, you know, usually through loving tolerance of sin. You know, the whole he gets us campaign. You've seen that on TV, right? He gets us. All of us. Not to mention the pocket-sized Jesus that acts as your dutiful servant to make all your dreams come true. You just towed him around in your little, you know, suit pocket. What the effect has been, beloved, is to lose the real Christ. And as a result, Packer says, quote, there are innumerable churches. Listen now. There are innumerable churches that contain people who think of themselves as Christians following and revering Christ, but 
who have so lost touch with the truth about him that he's really become an X to them, a variable, an unknown quantity about whom they fantasize in a way that fudges the vital facts. And he says in real biblical terms, they remain Christless. Now, those are strong words, aren't they? But they're true. And that's what brought me to this text that we're looking at this morning from Paul's first letter to Timothy. Timothy, you remember, was the pastor in Ephesus, right? And Ephesus was the hotbed of paganism in the Roman culture in that time. It was the home of one of the most famous pagan temples ever, the Temple of Diana or the Temple of Artemis. And most of the city of Ephesus made their living from the temple in some way, whether as priests or as temple prostitutes or as actors and actresses in their various little skits or by supplying food or the necessary articles for worship. Almost all of the city of Ephesus derived its living from the temple of Diana. And in addition... Timothy was faced with the problem of false teachers inside the church. The very thing that Paul had warned about, that there would be men that would arise among them and speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, men who would de-Christ Christ. And that's why we see repeated encouragements in this letter to the purity of the doctrine, right? To hold fast to the purity of the doctrine that's been delivered to you. Beloved, the plain truth is that Timothy faced the same sort of issues that we do in our own age. So Paul writes this text to encourage Timothy. He writes it to shore up and strengthen the church. He writes it to encourage steadfastness and faithfulness in the midst of trying circumstances and to remind them of the central confession of their faith in Christ. And it's a good word, beloved. It's a good reminder to them. And it's a good and it's a necessary word to us. So I want us to look at these words this morning. And I want us to, you know, my prayer for our souls is that we'll be encouraged. We will be instructed and we will be edified in the word of God. That we will be shored up in the truth of the mystery of godliness, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's start just... Just first by by looking at what Paul says again, how he encourages Timothy in the church in Ephesus to know and to stay true to who they are. And he does it here in verses 14 through 15. Look what he says. He says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now here's the deal. There's a mountain of spiritual truth just in these first two verses of this text. Okay? Just a mountain of spiritual truth. Words that Timothy needs to hear and he needs to pass on to the church, right? Words of instruction and ex- exhortation for the Ephesian church amidst this darkened and this sinful culture. And it begins in this way. Paul says this. He says, look, hey, Timothy, here's my plan. I am planning on coming to see you soon. I really want to do that. I want to come see you. I'd love to come and, and preach to the guys in Ephesus. But here's the deal. If I delay, if I'm not able to get there, I am writing you this letter. I'm, I'm writing you this, this, this truth so that y'all will live as you ought to as the church of the living God. But in order for you to do that, 
In order for you to really do that, you have got to know and stay true to who you are. You got to know and you got to stay true to who you are. You're the household of God. You are the church of the living God. You are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Short, compact phrases, right? But powerful meaning. He says, you've got to remember, guys, who you are. And the first thing you need to remember is this. You're the household of God. Now, what's he getting at when he says that? Well, here's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, listen, beloved, you need to remember that you're God's home. You are God's home. You need to remember that you are the people among whom God dwells on this earth. God doesn't dwell with everybody. God doesn't make his manifest presence known to everybody. God dwells with his people. He makes his manifest presence known among his people. He delights to reveal himself to his people. Isn't that true? Beloved, I wonder sometimes, and I'm not saying this to like, you know, this is, this is not me hammering you. This is me exhorting you to, 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 you know, pull your head out of the sand. I wonder sometimes Do we really understand, do we really contemplate the glory and the nobility, the wonderful blessing and surpassing honor that it is to be the household of God, that it is to know that when we gather together, God is actually in our midst. Do we really think about that like we ought to? Paul is saying is, you aren't doing make-believe. When you get together, your goal is not to try to pump everybody up and give them some kind of an emotional experience so that they feel like they did something that day. The realization is that when we get together as the people of God in corporate worship, when we gather together to magnify and glorify the Lord, God really is among us. He is here right now. He witnessed your worship just a few moments ago. He is right here in this congregation listening to this sermon that I'm preaching. And I'll give an account for every single word of it. The transcendent and the glorious God makes his home on this earth, not in a building, right? Not in a temple, not in the Holy of Holies, but with the people, with his people that have been born again and gathered by the Holy Spirit, who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus and made holy unto the Lord, ransomed and adopted into His family by the Holy Spirit. When we gather, we really are in God's presence. We are His household. And there are some implications that come with that picture that are glorious. First of all, listen, we are the household of God because God is... Our architect and our builder. Do you ever think about that? The, this, the constitution of this church, the, the, the people by whom it is constituted, right? The, the family that is here. We didn't make that up. We didn't invent that. God did. God is the one who chose the, the composition of this church. The church, this church wasn't built after God's plan. It's built according to Christ's plan. It's built according to His will and His alone. The church has been fashioned by God, praise God. More than that, the church is the household of God because it's here 
When we gather together in worship that he dwells in his fullness. Now think with me about this, right? Of course God is everywhere, right? We know he's omnipresent. God, God is everywhere at all times. But God is not equally manifest everywhere at all times. And when as the, as the household of God, we gather together, the emphasis is that here the Lord dwells with us in a special way, that it's a special place of his presence with his elect and his regenerated and his ransomed and his beloved church, right? And it leads to this, that it's here, beloved, where he makes himself most clearly known, right? We, there's an old saying, right? If you really want to know a man, follow him home one day and watch how he is at home, right? Right? That's, that's true in an earthly sense. But in this household, as, as God communes with us together, it's here that God reveals himself in a special way with a degree of clarity, right? And a degree of glory and a degree of wonder that eclipses, get this now, beloved, even his revelation in the entire universe. He's ordained it that way. It's the household of God. We are because it's the place of his fatherly rule, right? It's true that God rules over all creation. It's true that everything does as God commands, right? But there's a special sense in which God rules over his house according to his word, right? Through guidance and through instruction, through blessing and discipline, his voice is preeminent above all others. In other words, think about it like this. In my home, in my home, the authority in my home is me and my word. Under Christ, of course, right? But in a far greater way, the authority in this house is God and not man. The church is the household of God because, listen, man, it's the place where he's worshipped. Look, if a father receives honor nowhere else in the world, right, he ought to receive honor where? In his own home. Isn't that true? So here it is in this family of God where God is truly worshipped in spirit and in truth and nowhere else. It's in the household of God where we love and trust and rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ and all of our praise and all of our prayers are offered through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to the Lord that God as Father is truly worshipped. Right here. The church is the household of God because she's the object of His deepest love. A father, right? A, a good father does everything that he does for the good of his family because he loves his wife and his kids, right? Right? In a far grander way, I want you to think about this. If we were to trace God's providence, if we were to trace God's hand, if we were to trace everything that God has ever done, here's what we would find. We would find that he does everything that he does first for his own glory, right? But then second, what? For the good of those whom he loves. Isn't that true? Now I want you to think about that for a second. I want you to think what an incredible privilege it is to have a father, God, who created this universe, who rules it by the word of his power, and who does so so that he is magnified and glorified by whom? By his own children whom he blesses without measure. We know these words from Romans. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, right? For those who love God, all things work together. Yeah, why do we love him? 
Why do we love him? Because he loved us first. And then last, the church is the household of God because she belongs to God, right? Right? There is in no way, no sense that the church is a human institution. I want you to hear me when I say that. I want you to hear me when I say that, okay? In no sense, in no way is the church a human institution. And here's why that's important. We have no right to redefine or re-envision, no right to worship or live in whatever way seems right to us, no right to accommodate the church to whatever seems in vogue at the time, because the church is God's household, and He has all rights over her. To put it plainly, in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, there is a synagogue of Satan out there, right? There's a synagogue of Satan who says that they are the people of God and are not. And there is the church of the living God where God reigns, where he dwells in fullness and he reveals himself, where he manifests his life and his love, where he sustains and rules by his word, where he's loved and adored by his people. There's a synagogue of Satan that thinks themselves the people of God. And then there's the people of God. And what a glory it is. What a remarkable privilege it is to be the household of God. Moreover, Paul describes us here, the church, the called out ones, the the assembly. He describes us as the church of the living God, right? We're the household of God and we are the church of the living God. Now, why, why would Paul put emphasis on that? That title for the Lord, the living God, right? Why, why would he do that? And especially in this letter to Timothy. Let me tell you why. Beloved, he's drawing, deliberately drawing a contrast between the paganism and the dead idolatry of Ephesus and the church. He's drawing a distinction between the, the massive temple of Diana and Ephesus and all of its outward splendor. That's really death and the church of the living God. In fact, you know, it's interesting. The history of the temple of Diana, the temple of Artemis, you know, it's almost humorous if it wasn't so sad. Where'd that thing come from? Well, the history of the temple of Diana, we get a glimpse into it in Acts chapter 19 and verse, verse 35, where, where there is recorded for us the words of the town clerk in Ephesus. And he says this. He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Here's what he's talking about. At some point in the past, this strangely shaped meteorite had fallen out of the sky, right? And when these superstitious pagan men saw it, they saw in it some faint resemblance to a woman. I don't know what you got to be on to look at a rock and see a woman. But they did. And they built a temple around it. And they called it Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. Apparently, Ephesian women must have been some ugly women. I don't know what else to say. But they built this temple around it. They began to worship it. Think about this, right? This lifeless piece of rock and the superstitions of men became the glory of Ephesus. 
and the object of worship throughout the entire Roman world, right? But it was a sad joke. Rocks aren't alive. It was a sad joke, just like everything else that fallen man exalts and fashions and puts forth as a replacement for the God of glory. It's, it's worthless. And Paul says, listen, you're the church of the living God. You're not like those guys that worship in the temple of Artemis. You don't have a, a powerless, impersonal, imaginary God. Your God's real. And he's alive. And he's not like the dead idols and the false gods. Your God is the living God, the true God, the fountain of life and truth, praise God. And as the church of the living God, you got a responsibility, man. As the church of the living God, you have an inescapable calling, a vital responsibility to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. You need to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And why the archaeological language, architectural language here? Why the architectural language here? I'll tell you why. What made the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana, one of the great wonders of the ancient world was this series of 127 pillars or columns that held up the roof of the temple, all of which were buttressed so that they wouldn't move in the wind. And their function Beloved, it wasn't just to hold the roof up. It was for that. But it was to thrust that roof high into the air so that it towered above everything else, so that it would draw attention from no matter where you were in Ephesus, so that you would see it on the water, you know, if you were a mariner. It was to throw it high into the air so that that massive, shining, marble roof would encompass all of your senses. You could not avoid seeing it. And in a like manner, Paul is saying, just like those pillars and buttresses lift that massive roof up into the sky, that pagan monolith, just as it does that, listen, you are to lift high and put on display And make so inescapably evident the truth of God in Christ and the truth of God's word and the truth of God's glory. You're to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth to raise high the truth of the living God in this darkened world. So do it. Do it. Just as a you know, a, a pillar thrusts the, 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 the roof upward. You thrust the truth of God up into the sky so that all can see it. Hold it steady like a buttress. Support it here in this world. Know you are and know what you're about. You're the household of God. You're the church of the living God. And your responsibility is... To be the pillar and the buttress of truth. Not opinion. Not pragmatism. Not worldly ideas. Not social or political party agendas. You're to be the pillar of the truth. You're to present the truth in a world that is saturated with error. That is saturated with worthless opinions. That is you know, sold out to pragmatism. That is filled with fantasy and broken and flawed human wisdom. 
a world that follows worthless and misleading and conflicting ideas that get paraded and exalted as if they were the very pinnacle of knowledge and wisdom. Beloved, we live in a confused world, don't we? Don't we? It's getting more confused all the time. How utterly confused must you be to believe that a man can become a woman, that a woman can become a man, and that a man can give birth? We've got a responsibility in the midst of this stupidity to hold forth the only truth that saves any soul. In fact, I'm going to say this, and I mean it. The the grand test of the authenticity of any church, the grand test of whether or not a church is really a church, is this. It's do we, do you, hold to the truth of God both in faith and in practice, period. Not the, not the, the truth of God plus something else. Not the truth of God plus some rituals. Not the truth of God plus some experience. Not the truth of God plus, you know, whatever else. The question is, the question of authenticity is, do we hold to the truth of God in faith and in practice, period? That's it. In fact, Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He said, it's the church's business to maintain the truth with all of her might. I'm going to say that again. It is the church's business to maintain the truth with all of her might. She is set as a brazen wall and an iron pillar against all error. However men may cringe, however men may bow and fold, there stands the column fast and firm, fixed on its pedestal, set on its base, And so should the church in all ages stand fast to truth and yield to no error and no concealment of doctrine and no change of ordinance. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying you don't yield to error no matter how popular it might be. And and you don't conceal the doctrine no matter how currently unpopular it might be. And you don't change what you have been ordained by Christ to do. The business of the church, he goes on, is to uphold, defend, maintain, and propagate the pure doctrine of Christ and his apostles. And if she fails in this, if in her midst the truth is not prized, if it is not adorned, if it is not vindicated and proclaimed, The church, so-called, is no longer the pillar of truth, but it is a bowing wall and a tottering fence. Ask yourself, how many churches are pillars and buttresses of the truth in this world? And how many are really bowing walls and tottering fences? Beloved, this is not our church. You understand that, right? You're part of it. You're a member here, but it's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And the message, the the truth, it's not our message. It, It belongs to the Lord. And we're just pillars raising it high and a buttress holding it firm. How the church today needs to reawaken to this reality. The church has got to be the pillar and the buttress of divine and unchanging truth. 
We alone must hold fast and proclaim the truth when it gets lost or it gets ignored or it gets covered over or it gets repudiated or it gets rejected, whatever. We need to be the ones to hold fast to it, to rediscover it and to preach it unashamedly. And that's why the only hope for a nation, you know, this is crazy. Our world, our nation thinks it's hope. It's greatest hope, you know, is to silence the voices of white Christian conservatives. Oh, you're making that up. No, I actually watch C-SPAN. The best thing we could do is silence Christianity. Because that's the cause of all of our issues. All of our problems. We wouldn't have any issues if it weren't for those pesky Christians. And especially those ones that live in rural areas. They're the worst. Those bitter gun, gun clingers. Right? And yet, you know what? Despite that, here's the truth. The only hope for any nation in the midst of a downhill slide into degradation and destruction is an uncompromising and a faithful church that speaks the truth and lives the truth and prays for God's mercy on that nation. That's it. We've got to stay true to who we are. We need to stay true to the truth. That's what Paul's saying here. And at the very core of that truth is the mystery of godliness. It's the mystery of Christ himself. Paul calls us to uphold the truth and then he provides for us what most commentators agree is a fragment of an early hymn that encompasses the core truths about the Lord Jesus Christ, the vital and essential truth that unites us as his people. This common confession about the Lord Jesus Christ that identifies the true church. Look at verse 16 with me again. Paul introduces this hymn fragment by saying, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul gives us this this hymn fragment that, you know, the Ephesians could have easily memorized, that we could easily memorize. It just flows so easily and so well. He gives us this, this hymn fragment to remind us of what the truth is that unites us all together, right, as his people. In fact, I love the way that he does this, the way that he introduces it. He uses two words. He uses the Greek word for great, megas, right? And then he uses a word that's found nowhere else in the New Testament. He made this word up. Homo logomenos. Homo logomenos. You say it three times fast, you know, I don't know. But he uses these two words. And together what they mean is this. What I'm about to say to you is so monumental. It's so magnificent. It is so great. It is beyond debate. That's what he's saying. It's beyond discussion. It's beyond argument. It's beyond any kind of, uh, you know, discussion or whatever. It, this is absolutely what I'm saying to you is so remarkable and it's so true. It's so true. It is confessedly great and it is beyond all dispute. And what I'm about to say to you, the theme of it is the mystery of godliness. Now, what is that? Well, we know what a mystery is, right? We studied it last week. A mystery is just that which, you know, is humanly undiscoverable. It's a divine secret, right? That's once hidden and then then has been openly revealed in plain sight by God. And so this mystery that we're talking about, the mystery of godliness, it's not a what, it's a who. 
right? The mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ himself. That's what it is. This, this mystery that's spoken of by the prophets and foreshadowed in the Old Testament and now fully revealed for all of us to see is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come to redeem sinners, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so what follows here is this fragment of a hymn that is really a song about the life of Christ. And he's saying, this is what we all need to believe, and this is what we all need to magnify, and this is what we all need to hold forth, this is what we all need to be preaching. This is what needs to bind us together. And he begins with the incarnation. Look what he says. He was manifested in the flesh. Now, theologians and and commentators and stuff have spilled a whole bunch of ink trying to figure out who that he is. It's really not hard. It's obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying here is this. He's saying, you know what? God the Son, the Word of God, the Lord of glory, the one who's always been God and with God, was manifested, was displayed in human flesh. Now, here's the deal. Nobody in here went, oh, just now, did you? And it's because we we just heard this so much, right? That we just kind of take it for granted. Well, of course God took on human flesh, right? As if it is not as mind-blowing as it is. Now, let's just be honest for a second. If Beloved, if we really think about this, if we really consider what it means that the God, the immeasurable God, was contracted in the form of a being at first in his mother's womb, smaller than a period in your Bible, do we realize how utterly amazing and marvelous and inconceivable to human thinking that that really is. That the, the infinite God who fills all things, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty actually condescended to be made like one of us, yet without sin. It wasn't a phantasm. It wasn't some parlor trick. It was real. In fact, you know, in, in, in Philippians, again, familiar words to us, Paul tells us that Though Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Forget all the science fiction garbage you read and and let that startle you as it should. That this one who in every respect is God, before his incarnation, before he was born of the Virgin Mary from eternity existed in the form of God with all the majesty and the power and the attributes and the honor and the right that the only living and true God can possess everything that makes God God. He humbled himself and he emptied himself and he laid aside to his rights to his glory and he became a man. The descendant of David and the offspring of Mary. And the humility of Christ in that is staggering, isn't it? Isn't it? He who filled the heavens. Beloved, he didn't despise being formed in Mary's womb. He didn't bulk at becoming a servant. He didn't say to the Father, I'll do this, but there's some conditions. Let me, let me appear to 
everyone as I did to Isaiah, for instance, in the temple, high and lifted up. Or I'll do it, but let me appear with thunder and lightning like I did at Mount Sinai or even as a mighty warrior like I did to Joshua before Jericho. There's none of that. The God of eternity became an infant in time and he grew up into manhood in a real body. In a real body. He worked and he walked. He spoke and he acted. He became weary and thirsty and hungry just like one of us. In a real body. He felt the common emotions. The emotions I mean common to all men. Love, joy, gladness, thankfulness, sorrow, disappointment, heaviness, grief. Every day he served Father God with his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength. With his arms and with his hands and with his legs and his feet. He presented himself as a living sacrifice. As an act of worship. He faced Satan in temptation. The opposition of sinners. The demands of his mission on this earth. And he overcame it all by his trust in Father God. And by his dependence upon his word. And through the unction of the Holy Spirit. He went about doing good, preaching the word of God, healing the sick, raising the dead in a real body. He manifested the character of God, the love, the grace, the mercy, the judgment, the holiness, all of it. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And it was in a real body that Jesus accomplished what he came to do. To ransom our lives from sin and death, from eternal destruction. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, true? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. In a real body, the incarnate Son of God was nailed to a cross and He manifested Himself to be punished for our sin, to be punished for our rebellion, to be punished for our wickedness, for our unbelief, for our hardness of heart, none of which He had, so that we could be forgiven by God and saved from His wrath. He was manifested. He, the Son of God, God Himself was manifested in the flesh and praise God that He was. Is that a great mystery? You bet. That is a, we will never understand that. Even when we behold Christ, the glorified Christ, with our glorified eyes, We'll never be able to understand the union of God and man in Christ. That what was once dust of the earth sits enthroned on the throne of heaven in him. It's a mystery. It's a mystery that he could become flesh. It's a mystery that he would desire to become flesh. It's a mystery that he would choose to become God-man for all of eternity. Not just in time, forever. His union with humanity never ends. But it's enough for us to know that it's true, isn't it? And to trust in Him. And to adore Him. And to worship Him with our all. Christ was manifest in the flesh. And He was vindicated by the Spirit, Paul says. Why would Jesus need to be vindicated by the Spirit? Why would He need to be proven by the Spirit? Why would He need to be attested to by the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you why. It's because when Jesus became a man, He had no form or majesty that we should look on Him and no beauty that we should desire Him, Isaiah 53, 2. When Jesus, look, Jesus wasn't like the way that He's portrayed in so many things that we see. Jesus didn't have a halo. He, he, there wasn't some, you know, ethereal glow about Jesus. He didn't have some tremendous aura. 
There's no outward form, no majesty, no beauty that we would know him to be God. But the Holy Spirit vindicated him as the Son of God. And I want you to think about how he did it. First of all, it was by the working of the Holy Spirit, wasn't it? That, the, that Christ's body was prepared in the womb of Mary. Isn't that true? Gabriel told Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Christ was vindicated by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Do you remember? John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that for a moment. John the Baptist said, I didn't know who the Christ was. He was Jesus' cousin. They would get together at family gatherings. And there was nothing that made him go, I think my cousin Jesus might be the Messiah. Nothing. He had no clue until the day Christ was baptized. His preaching. His preaching was by the power and the unction of the Holy Spirit, wasn't it, beloved? The, the unified testimony of everybody who ever heard Jesus preach was nobody ever spoke like this man. Even his enemies confessed that to be true. The Holy Spirit vindicated Christ through his miracles that were performed by the power of God and in the unction of the Holy Spirit. You remember these words? Remember when Jesus was starting his ministry and he came to Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue and they give him the scroll, right? And it's the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up to Isaiah, you know, 61 and then he starts reading from it. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he put it back and he said to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then a little bit later, when John the Baptist isn't quite sure he got it right at the river Jordan, and he's wondering if Jesus really is the Christ, you remember how that goes. It says in, in Matthew chapter 11, John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, and he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In other words, are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus answered him, Answer them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, hear all the signs of the one who's filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus talks about them in Nazareth. And then when John's wondering, Jesus says, I'm accomplishing all the signs that are to be expected by the Holy Spirit and the Messiah. I'm the one. It was the Holy Spirit, beloved who empowered and strengthened the, Holy, the Lord Jesus Christ to offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. You realize that? Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14 says that Jesus, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. And the power of the eternal spirit offered himself as, without, blemish, as, without blemish to God. But supremely, you know when the Holy Spirit, with the greatest act of the Holy Spirit's vindication of Christ was, you know it, it was when? It was at his resurrection from the dead, wasn't it? 
When Jesus died, think about it, he died under a cloud of suspicion, right? A cloud of guilt. He was accused by the Jews of blasphemy for saying that he was equal to God. He was condemned by the Romans for being a common criminal and a rabble rouser and a problem maker. But you know what? The resurrection and the testimony of the Holy Spirit reversed the judgment of the world on the Lord, didn't it? Scripture says he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I want you to see the wonder of this. The word that's translated there is declared. He was declared to be the son of God in power. That word declared is a Greek word, the Greek word horizo, from which we get the word, anybody want to guess? Horizon. What's the horizon? Well, when you see the horizon, it is the clear demarcation, isn't it? Between the earth and the sky. Right there, that line. Above it's the sky, below it's the earth. And the Holy Spirit here, in raising Christ from the dead, drew such a line of demarcation is the idea. Between the Lord Jesus and between everyone else who has ever drawn a breath on this earth. He vindicated Christ. When he descended upon the church at Pentecost, fulfilling Christ's promise, he vindicates Christ now as the Spirit of God makes us to hear the testimony about Christ and understand it and believe it. The way he opens our blinded eyes and unstops our deafened ears and makes our hearts that are hard as stone into hearts of flesh. And he makes us to be born again from above. And he, he leads us by conviction, right? And exhortation. As he delivers us continually from the grip of sin and the grip of Satan. And brings us into the kingdom of God. Praise God the Holy Spirit vindicates Christ. Amen? That's the first thing. The first part of the song. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Then Paul goes on to say, he was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. He was seen by the angels. Why would that be said? What's the point of that statement? And think about it. Didn't the angels always behold the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, right? From the moment that the triune God created them. I mean, didn't he? Didn't they? Yeah. They beheld his glory as the creator of the heavens and the earth. They beheld his glory as the holy judge. When along with the Father and the, and the Holy Spirit... They pronounced judgment on the angels who rebelled with Satan, right? Their brethren who could not be redeemed. They saw his wisdom and his righteousness and his sovereign holiness and his glory, right? But you know what? In his incarnation, the angels saw something they hadn't seen before. They saw things revealed in him they never knew. His mercy, his grace, his steadfast, unchanging love, his condescension, his humility, Think about it. They saw the invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had a front seat to it all. They watched it all. Gabriel was chosen, right? Gabriel was chosen to go to Mary and tell her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Another angel was sent to Joseph who was thinking about divorcing Mary, right? 
saying to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It was another angel, then joined by a multitude of angels, that declared to shepherds on the hillside, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Angels told Joseph of Herod's evil plot to kill the Christ child. After Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what do we read? That angels came and ministered to him. When Christ prayed in great agony in Gethsemane and sweat drops of blood, an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. They were there to greet him at his resurrection. In fact, I want you to think about this. The first preachers of the resurrection were not flesh and blood. It was angels. Angels that saw him. They beheld every bit of it. All of this. Everything Christ did. And no wonder they sing as they do. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He was seen of the angels. And he's proclaimed among the nations. That word there that's translated as proclaimed is preached. It was preached. Preached among the nations. And that's how the mastery or the mystery of Christ, I mean, is to go forth. It's to be preached. Not by any other way of man's devising, right? You remember what the the great rush, and it still goes on now, you know, to do movies or skits or plays or whatever else, you know? Entertainment in the church in order to to get the gospel across because people can't really understand preaching anymore. You know what? That's a subtle way of saying people are stupid and they can't understand anything but a picture book. That's a lie. It wasn't, hey, go out, go forth and spread the good news of Jesus Christ and use whatever means you'd like to. That's how you end up with, you know, those preachers that are mimes, you know, those guys that are like pulling crap out of their ears and stuff, you know, like that's going to spread the gospel. No, it's just some goofy dude in a white suit with a white face acting like he's stuck in a box that doesn't exist. You would preach it. It was preached in the nation's. The book of Acts tells about the spread of the gospel by faithful disciples from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. How? By preaching. Even now, the message of Jesus Christ is preached throughout the nations and the church labors to make him known everywhere because it's not a fairy tale. It's the truth of the ages and it's the greatest story ever told. And by the plain preaching of the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, by the plain preaching of his glory as the Son of God, multitudes from around the world, not only the Jews, have heard the gospel. And if it won't be received like that, it won't be received in any other way. He was preached and preached among the nations. And Paul says he's believed, he was believed on in the world. You ever thought about what a miracle that is? That Christ is believed upon in this world? That he's being proclaimed and preached everywhere and miracle of miracles, he's being believed on in the world? Think about this. He's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And yet Jews and Gentiles have heard him preach and are believing on him in the world. This world that's so sunken in sin, that's so darkened by unbelief and ignorance, that is so filled with pride and self-righteousness and cruelty and iniquity has heard the preaching of Christ and souls have believed. In this world of sinners, this message of Christ that is so humbling and offensive, isn't it? To human pride. 
so clear in its declaration of our sinfulness, so full, though, of grace and mercy and love has been preached and fallen men and women have turned from sin and believed in Christ and forsaken their self-righteousness and given up their lives to follow Him. And they have been fully transformed by His love to honor and worship Him as Lord and King. How in the world can that be? A message that is universally offensive. How how do people believe that message? Well, it's only by grace, right? It's only by the grace of God. To open blinded eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look, man, if you're a believer in Christ, you know this to be true, isn't it? Don't you? That you had absolutely no interest in Christ at one point in your life. There was nothing you wanted to do with him. Not the Christ of the Bible. There was no burning desire in you to obey God. There was no longing for him at all. If you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what a miracle and a marvel of grace that is. How is it that any of us are saved? I mean, let's just be honest. Look in the mirror, beloved. Why should you be saved? Why? I think about that a lot. Not all the time, but a lot. And the reason I think about it is because I have an entire family. I'm not just talking about a few. I mean everybody. And no one in my family lineage that I know who is a Christian. I'm it. It's not because I'm smarter. My brothers are smarter. It's not because I'm more moral. I can assure you I'm not. It's not because, oh, look what God could do with me if he saved me. When people talk about that, like, man, God should really save LeBron James. Could you imagine what he could do with LeBron James? I would venture to say not much more than he did with, I don't know, Paul. Or whomever else is in Christ. There's only one way you're in Christ. And that's because of the grace of God. It's all the work of God, man. And when I think about it, when you think about it, isn't it true? I'm a Christian because he changed me. I'm a Christian because he saved me. I'm a Christian because I was out wandering and he drew me. He drew me. And by his love and his grace, I came. Not any other reason. Not any other reason. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. And last, he was taken up in glory. That seems out of order, doesn't it? That's, it's, it's, it's talking here about his ascension to the right hand of the Father. It's out of chronological sequence, isn't it? Wonder why that is. Well, it's because Matthew, it's, it's because Matthew Henry says, it's that way because it's the crown of his exaltation. The fact that he was taken up in glory in fact it's significant that this is the last stanza here's why think about this now the lord jesus christ would never have gone to glory if he had not finished everything he came to came to do true or false true right he would never have accepted glory he would never have accepted a reward if he had not fully earned it but he did but he did He went back to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. He took his seat at the right hand of God. He's been given a name that's above every other name. The name Lord, that every name before which every knee must bow. And he's there in heaven, reigning over his spiritual kingdom. But his glory, the fullness of his glory, it's not yet been fully displayed. It's going to happen. 
It'll happen when he comes again to establish his kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, and he'll be revealed in majesty and glory in all of his fullness forever, and he will bear his sword against his enemies, and he'll take us to be with him forever in glory. So, what's the significance of this ancient hymn? What's the significance of this? Well, first, it's a, it is a good composite of the essential truths we must believe as the people of God. And what it tells us, church, is this. If you're in Christ, you are resting in a finished work that can't be undone. You have an atonement that has put away all of your sin. You have experienced a work of grace and forgiveness and all of it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing that you could have done for yourself and everything that Christ has done for you. You are accepted before the Father in Him. And so no matter what is or what may come, your eternal destiny, if you believe and you keep on believing, is settled forever by the love and the grace of God to you in Christ. That's the truth, beloved, that makes us the household of God and guides how we must live. It makes us the church of the living God. And it makes us the pillar and the buttress of this truth commanding that we hold it high and put it on display and magnify it and show forth the truth of God in Christ. This is a real Christmas carol. But it's more than that. It's a song for the ages. So what do we say to these things? Well, first off, this. I'll give you three things, okay? First, we've got to admit and see and believe that this confession, that this mystery, the mystery of godliness, what Paul writes for us here in verse 16, it is the confession of every true church. If you don't confess this, you're not a church. If you don't confess this, you're not a Christian. John MacArthur says, he says, this is our common confession, talking about the people of God. He says, you put away, put the denominations aside, put the church names and the titles aside, put all the other issues aside, and all those who are part of the living God's church, all those who are truly in the household of God, Make this unequivocal common confession concerning Jesus Christ. We all have the same great great Christology that sweeps us from incarnation right through the cross and resurrection to the glorious coronation of Christ. This is what we confess, right? You can't confess less. This is what we confess. Then second, listen, the mystery of godliness is not just to be affirmed, it's to be believed, right? Each one of us has got to believe and keep on believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a little something, a little tidbit for you. John 3.16, that great, you know, most famous probably verse from the entire Bible, right? Right? I don't, is there one that's more famous? Maybe judge not lest you be judged, right? But that great verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That word believes, beloved, that word believes is a present active participle. You know what it means? It means to believe and then to keep on believing. That's what that means. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes and keeps on believing in Him should not perish but have eternal life. True faith in Christ, believing on Christ. Listen to me. It's not a once upon a time thing can't tell you again you've heard me say this before how many times i've gone to do a funeral and the person that died is very obviously not a christian at all gave no evidence whatsoever whatsoever of worshiping christ in the least 
And yet, there's always that guy in the family that was like, well, I think when he was 11, he went down at a, at a certain revival that took place, and he made his profession of faith, and he got baptized. Now, he never went back to church again, but he got that taken care of when he was 11. That is mythology at its greatest. Are you hearing me? Or maybe it's worse. Maybe that's what I should say. That's mythology at its worst. Well, I just did a little thing and did a little that, and here I am, and I'm good. That's not believing on Christ. That's not believing on Christ. I don't know what that is. That might be guilt-induced action. That might be temporary excitement. That might be some warm feeling that doesn't last. But I'll tell you right now, it's not faith. Not as the Scripture describes it. True belief in Christ is the unreserved trust of a heart that's convinced of sin in Christ as an all-sufficient Savior and for the long haul. That's what that is. Believe and keep on believing in Christ and you're saved. Believe in Him. Receive Christ. Hold fast to Him as He holds fast to you, right? I would say to you that are here this morning that have never trusted in Christ, listen to me, that have never really been gripped by the truth of who Jesus is and surrendered your soul to Him and believed on Him for life, I want you to hear me right now. God the Father calls Christ great. Paul calls the Lord Jesus Christ great. The Holy Spirit vindicates Him as great. The angels have seen He is great. Those who preach Him know Him to be great. Those who receive Him find Him to be great. Stop delaying and believe upon this great Christ. Amen? And then last, this mystery of godliness. Beloved, it's got to be preached. It's got to be preached. I'll close with these words from Charles Spurgeon. And I hope that you will find them as encouraging as I did. He wrote these words in a sermon on this very text at the very end. And this is what he said. He said, when I am preaching the gospel, many may say, oh, he is only telling a commonplace truth. Just so. I know that. And yet, I feel within myself as if I was wheeling up God's great cannon, which will still blow the gates of hell to pieces. What? None of the venerable mysteries of Rome? What? None of the new philosophical discoveries? No, none of them. None of the imposing counterfeits. No, brethren, not a single one of them. They're all wooden guns. They're shams and counterfeits. And if ever they would be fired off, they would be blown to bits. This plain truth that God was made flesh and dwelt among us is God's great battering ram against which nothing can stand. Never lose heart in the gospel. Never lose heart in the gospel, my brethren. But think that you hear the apostle calling across the ages, Great is the mystery of godliness. Look for nothing greater because the gospel is great enough. Keep at it. Never think you've told men enough times about it. As Napoleon told his warriors at the pyramids, a thousand ages look down upon you. Beloved bleeding martyrs who from their graves call you to be faithful. Confessors who ascended to heaven in fiery chariots implore you to be steadfast. Hold fast to what you have received. Do not attempt to mend the truth. Do not venture to shape it according to the fancy of the times, but proclaim it in its native purity. By this hammer, the gods of Rome and Greece were dashed to pieces. By this lever, the world was turned upside down. 
It's this gospel which has brought glory to God, filled heaven with redeemed souls, and made hell to tremble in all its palaces of flame. Find it around your heart. Defy the hosts of Rome or hell to unloose its fold. Wrap it around your waist in death and hold it as a standard in both your hands in life. The simple truth that Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save those who are lost and that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This must be your jewel, your treasure, and your life. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, who are we that you would save us? Why would you redeem us? Why would you ordain that Christ would be made manifest in the flesh and that he would be vindicated by the Spirit and that he would be seen of angels and that he would be preached among the nations and that he would be believed on in this world and then taken up into glory. Why would you do that? I can think only of two things. Because of your commitment, your steadfast commitment to your glory and because of your steadfast love, For the undeserving, for us. Lord, I pray, how I pray, that we would hear a message like this this morning. And that if we're in Christ, our hearts would be inflamed. That if we're in Christ, we would be moved and motivated to to just, Lord God, live out loud for the praise of your glory. To be unashamed and unafraid. Lord God, to, to rejoice that You make yourself known to us as your household to rejoice, Lord God, that you manifest yourself to us in in ways that you don't manifest yourself anywhere else in the world. That we would be overwhelmed and, and in awe, Lord God, that you would make of us a pillar and a buttress of your truth. That you would entrust your word to us and that by your spirit, Lord God, we would We would lift your name high. I'm asking you, Lord, that you would just move in our hearts right now. And, Father, you'd move us to obedience and humility toward you. I pray for every single person in this room to respond to these words in the way that they should. And I pray, Father God, for those that are here that are lost to see how great Christ is and to stop with their foolishness and to surrender themselves to Jesus alone. I pray you do this work among us, everything that you alone can do. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.